0: Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. God of all creation, send your Holy Spirit among us this day, that the seed of your word might take root in our hearts and bear the fruits of peace, love, and justice for all. Amen. The scripture today is from Genesis 26. When a famine gripped the land, a different one from the first famine that occurred in Abraham's time. Isaac set out toward Gerar and toward King Abimelech of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, "'Don't go down to Egypt, but settle temporarily in the land that I will show you. Stay in this land as an immigrant, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give you all these lands to you and your descendants. I will keep my word, which I gave to your father Abraham. I will give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all of these lands. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants. I will do this because Abraham obeyed me and kept my orders, my commandments, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac lived in Gerar when the men who lived there asked about his wife he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men who live there will kill me for Rebecca, because she's very beautiful. After Isaac had lived there for some time, the Philistine king Abimelech looked out his window and saw Isaac laughing together with his wife Rebecca. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's your wife, isn't she? <clears throat> How could you say she's my sister? Isaac responded, Because I thought that I might be killed because of her. Abimelech said, What are you trying to do to us? Before long, one of the people would have slept with your wife, and you would have made us guilty. Abimelech gave orders of all the people anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. The word of God for the people of God.
1: I have an unhealthy relationship with Fritos. (laughs) You know the little corn chips from Frito-Lay, yes? So I'm kind of a night owl, and I like to stay up late, and I like to read. And if I'm reading, I like to snack. And I will sit there and automatically and mindlessly eat snacks. The saltier, the better. And very few snacks are saltier than Fritos, yeah? So of course the doctors will tell you this is like the most unhealthy thing you could possibly do. Stay up late, eating fatty, high sodium snacks. This is not a good habit. But what's uh, interesting about this is where I got this habit from. I got it from my mother. You see, she's also a night owl. She also likes to stay up late and read, and she also likes to snack. And her favorite snack of all is Fritos. Isn't that amazing how these little habits can get transmitted down from generation to generation? It seems trivial, but it happens. Now my mother never, obviously, she never handed me a bag of Fritos and said, son, I want you to eat this entire bag of Fritos. It's what we Milers do. It's the Miler way. She didn't do that. She did exactly the opposite. She said, she warned me how unhealthy they were and how I shouldn't eat so many. But I was watching what she did rather than what she said. We say very often values are caught, not taught. And that can also be true for negative values, for bad habits, as well. Now the real kicker to this story is something that happened just recently. I was reading with my eldest daughter, and uh, yeah, I had some snacks out, and I look over, and there's Emily, mindlessly, automatically, eating the snacks, and I thought, Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. It's not obvious, but something similar is happening in our text today. At first glance, this text seems like a strange text. In fact, I thought this was a little bit of Hazing the Intern (laughs) by Peter and Kate. Uh, You know, the old give them a really obscure Old Testament text trick and see what he does. But I think if we dig into it a little bit, you'll see how it fits. So our story is actually a continuation of the family story of Abraham and Isaac. You'll remember last week with Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham nearly sacrifices Isaac on the mountain. I still maintain that's got to put a lot of strain on that father-son relationship, but okay. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Isaac's all grown up now. He's married to the beautiful Rebekah. And we get to see in our text how he reacts as an adult, how he acts. The text is about Isaac, but there's a lot of very similar things that happened in Abraham's life. So the two stories almost mirror each other. Just like Abraham, Isaac and his family is affected by a famine. And so just like Abraham, Isaac starts, he takes his family and starts moving south to escape the famine. And just like Abraham, he pulls into the Philistine town of Gerar, where Abimelech is king. And there in Gerar, the Lord appears to Isaac and tells him to not continue down to Egypt, but to stay there in Gerar. And so Isaac obeys. So far, so good. But things start to go a little off course in verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, because she is beautiful. So what's going on there? Seems kind of a strange response. And there's a few issues, I think, with Isaac's response. The first of which, it's just a big, fat lie. He's lying to the people that took him in. He's lying to his hosts. And that's never a good way to start any relationship. And as Abimelech points out later on, that could have put some Philistine man in in a pretty awkward position, right? Second, look at it from Rebekah's perspective. What Isaac is really doing is he's protecting himself at his wife's expense. He's prioritizing his own safety over hers. By not claiming Rebecca as his wife, he's exposing her to unwanted attention, unwanted advances, unwanted Facebook requests, friend requests, I don't know. But think about it. If Isaac really thought that the Philistines would kill him to get to Rebecca, he's got to know he's putting her in some danger. So it's not a moment of extreme courage here as a husband. And the third thing is Isaac is showing a deep distrust of God's promises. Look again at the beginning of our text, where the Lord is reaffirming all those beautiful covenantal promises that he had given to Abraham. He's reaffirming those with Isaac. He says, I will be with you and I will bless you. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And all nations will be blessed through you. The Lord has just gotten done telling this to Isaac in a supernatural vision. And Isaac, instead of relying on those promises, turns around and decides he has to lie to save his own skin. So it's an interesting behavior. More interesting is where he got it from. He got the behavior from his dad, Abraham. Because Abraham pulls the exact same thing. He pulls the she's my sister trick, not once, but twice. Look in Genesis 12. As he, Abraham, was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Or, sorry, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Okay? So that's once in Egypt. Then again in Genesis 20. Now Abraham moved on from there. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. That's twice. And the second time, interestingly, Abraham is in Gerar, the same place we find Isaac. And the same king sits on the throne, Abimelech. I think Abimelech got tired of dealing with Abraham and Isaac, you know. (laughs) He kept lying to him. But like father, like son... As he was growing up, I'm sure Isaac was watching his parents. I'm sure he was peering out from the tent flaps and seeing how they reacted, seeing what they did. And when Isaac, and he's grown up, and he's in a stressful situation, when he's in a potentially dangerous situation, he reverts back to the same behavior that he saw his father do. We talk a lot about how values are caught, not taught but sometimes those values are the wrong ones. Sometimes they're very positive ones, though. We talk about uh, how values can be transmitted down through the generations, and we're talking in our summer series about how faith is formed through relationships, and there's very few relationships that are more powerful than that parent-child one. The National Study of Youth and Religion says If you want to know what faith your kids will have when they grow up, look at your own faith today. So again, the parent-child relationship can be extremely positive, but it can also be extremely negative. Some of the habits we learn from our parents are unhealthy. Some of them are actually destructive. If you're a certain age, and especially if you have kids, I'm sure there's been a moment in your life when something has just come out of your mouth and you pause and have a terrifying thought that goes along the line of, heaven help me, I'm becoming just like my parents, yeah? We've all had that sometime in our life. The story about the Fritos, that's a very silly little example. But all too often, the values transmitted from one generation to the next are much darker and more serious. Things like addiction, violence, racism, or maybe entitlement. Think about the example of the affluenza case in Dallas. You'll remember this one. Ethan Couch was 16 years old when he was driving drunk and he killed four people. During his trial, a psychologist, hired by the defense, testified that the teen was a product of affluenza and was unable to link his actions with consequences because of his parents teaching him that wealth buys privilege. Wow. Wealth buys privilege. Privilege enough to murder four people? If that's not an example of a negative value being given down from one generation to the next, I don't know what is. So friends, are we doomed to repeat our our parents' mistake? Are we destined to pass on bad values to our children? How can we break these cycles? What should our response be as a church, as a Christian? Those are very tough questions. Our secular world seems to have two answers. On the one hand, people would say, yes, you had a very difficult childhood. Um, You were dealt a tough hand. But now it's time to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're responsible for your own actions. That's one side. On the other side, you have the, it's not your fault. Your parents made you this way. You have a syndrome of some kind. You're a victim. Neither of those really seems right from a Christian point of view. Over here in the rub some dirt on it camp, you get the idea that there's no place for mercy. There's no place for grace. We know God is merciful to us, abundantly merciful. Shouldn't we show a little bit of grace to our fellow people? But over here in the blame your parents crowd, you get the idea that there's no accountability. There's no personal responsibility. So we know there's got to be a balance between these two. But how to strike that right balance? So, friends, honestly, this is where I got stuck, writing this sermon. I was thinking about how parents so often can fail their children and pass down bad habits and values. I was thinking about how our society fails the next generation and how much pain and suffering and anger that can cause. And I struggled with, what what can we do as a church in the face of this evil? And I thought, where's the good news in all of this? And then it hit me like a two by four. The answer was literally right in front of me. I was making exactly the same mistake that Isaac had made. I was overlooking God's promises. Look again at those first few verses of our text. I will be with you, I will bless you, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. God is, what's happening there is God is reaffirming the covenant he made with Abraham, and he's giving it, he's gifting it to Isaac, although Isaac did nothing to deserve it. And the good news, friends, is those same promises apply to us, down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, down through the generations, till they apply to us and they'll apply to our children and their children until Christ comes again. That's the good news. We may not be perfect parents, certainly our parents were not perfect parents, but what we can do is we can trust in God, who is a perfect parent, that he is faithful to transmit his values, his promises, his love, his grace, down to the next generation. And what a wonderful thought that is, yeah? And I think that's how we're called to live as a church. We're called to live in blessed assurance of God's promises, resting in those promises. We shouldn't be neurotically and nervously trying to fix every last little thing. And we shouldn't be worried, stressing out over if maybe, possibly, we inadvertently pass down a bad value to Sally or to Johnny. But we need to be a community of God's people. A community that understands the bedrock principles of our faith and can teach that to others. A community that helps each other grow into the covenantal promises of God by holding each other to high expectations. A community that talks amongst ourselves about how God is showing up in our lives. And finally, a community that lives beyond itself And is a force of good in the world. Yes, it's true, I have an unhealthy relationship with Fritos, and that particular bad habit I got from my parents. But you know, that's not the only value my parents passed down. In the church I grew up in, they had a tradition where on, uh, during Advent and Lent, they would have Wednesday night services. And before each service, there'd be a potluck dinner for the entire congregation. And my family uh, very frequently, I would say religiously, would go to those services. And I can remember the scene so vividly in my head from my childhood How, after dinner, all the kids, we would go running outside, and we would play. And it would be early evening, and the sun would be setting. And the adults, they would sit in the fellowship hall, and they'd sit around the tables, just talking, and relaxing, and laughing. We call it (laughs) fellowshipping. And then after a while, the parents would come out and stand on the porch, and they'd call us in because it was time for church and the kids somewhat reluctantly would come and then as a whole family we would go to church together. I didn't understand it at the time and I'm not sure my parents fully understood it but they were forming my faith in a very powerful way. They were passing down an important value. They were saying, look this is the church This is your family. That was the lesson I learned. And you know, they never had to say a single word. Amen.